Well, Jacob, as you already know, is a real character in the Bible. Like you and, and like me, he's a real living person. But also like you and like me, he was a real living stinker. Chapter 27, we saw that Jacob is a schemer. In 27, he cons his brother out of the birthright. You may recall that. And then he steals his brother's blessing. And he goes on the run to a place called Paddan Aram. But on the way, we get to chapter 28, and something absolutely amazing happens. And I'm, I'm still impressed by it. Though we're in chapter 31 tonight, I keep thinking about chapter 28 because it impresses me. It makes no sense. God pursues Jacob. God saves Jacob. It's that chapter, you may recall, where Jacob lay his head down on the stone and has a dream, and the Lord comes to him. And says, I want to be your God, and I want you to walk with me, and I want you and I to be in relationship and fellowship with each other. And we look at Jacob, and this is in the moment that he's on the run from lying and deceiving and ripping off his own brother. This is not at the high point of Jacob's spiritual life. It's at the low point, and God seeks him out, and God saves him, and it amazes me. And he still has a sinful and carnal nature, which you'll see, in, and we've seen, and we'll continue to see a little bit in Jacob's life. But he's saved. And there is a difference. There is change taking place in him. There is a subduing that's going on in chapters 29 through 32. And tonight we'll see that even more so. Jacob getting subdued. In chapter 29 he ended up with four wives and twelve sons. And so began the day of Jacob's trouble. And for 20 years he had to deal with Laban. Which I believe was a holy setup. I think that God planned this, prepared it in advance. Laban was the person that Jacob needed to be with. Not because he could learn from him, not because he could grow you know, from being like Laban, but because in Laban, Jacob could see a little more of himself. Laban is literally like a mirror. And Jacob needs to look into this mirror of Laban because they are so much alike. You ever notice in your life the hardest person to like is the person who tends to be a lot like you? And it takes some time for you to figure that out. But I've learned that in my life. The people who just bug me, when I really sit down and think about it, man, they're just like me. <laughs> and I want to fix them, but I don't want to fix myself. Jacob and Laban, as I said before, they're peas in a pod. And God puts this mirror, this, this instrument, called Laban, right in front of Jacob. And says, I want you to deal with this. Deal with yourself for 20 years. And so he does. Chapter 31 and verse 1. Now Jacob, oh by the way, you may recall on Sunday leading up to this that Jacob's flocks have been increasing. He's kind of learned from God something. He's been taking sticks and he's stripping them down and putting them in the water in front of the flocks when they mate. And he's been putting them in front of the flocks even outside the water just in front of them. And somehow Jacob is ending up with spotted, speckled, and black sheep and lambs and goats. And they're the ones that shouldn't be born at this point. The stronger should be the solid color, the white goats and sheep. But the speckled ones keep coming out and the spotted and the black and, and the, you know, the outcast kind of. And so Jacob's flock is just growing. It's getting massive. And Laban finds out about this. And Laban has done everything he can to keep this from happening. And now his sons are starting to grumble. And they're looking at Jacob. And here's where we start. Genesis 31, verse 1. Now Jacob heard the words of Laban's son, saying, Jacob has taken away all that was our father's. And from what belonged to our father, he has made all his wealth. 
Jacob saw the attitude of Laban, and behold, it was not friendly toward him as formerly. The word friendly is actually inserted there. It really just says that Laban's attitude was not toward him as formerly. Okay? Verse 3. Then the Lord said to Jacob, Return to the land of your fathers and to your relatives, and I will be with you. And so Jacob sent and called Rachel and Leah to his flock in the field. Now, listen, Jacob wants nothing more than to get out from under Laban's thumb. It has been 20 years, 7 years for his first wife, Leah, who he didn't expect to be his first wife, and then 7 more years to get Rachel thrown into the bargain who he wanted in the first place. And now, Jacob has worked for Laban another 6 years, and as you'll find out, it's been 6 hard years on top of the prior 14. Laban has been a taskmaster. Laban has cheated him time and time again. 20 years. He wants out. I don't know if you can relate to that. If you've ever been in a position or a place where someone had authority control over you and you just wanted to get away. And that's where Jacob's at. But you need to understand that his desire to leave is not simply because he's tired of being under the thumb. That's part of it. But it's also because God is calling him. God is saying, Jacob, I want you to get out now. You've been there long enough. It's time to go. God wants his children out from under the influence of this land, Haran, and this people, Laban's family. He wants them away from there. And you're going to see why in just a moment. Verse 4. So Jacob sent and called Rachel and Leah to his flock in the field. I think he did that because he wanted to get away from the tents where he couldn't be overheard. Just to talk to his two wives, see where they were really coming from. And it tells us, what was that? That's in verse 5. And he said to them, I see your father's attitude, that it is not toward me as formerly, but the God of my father has been with me. And he says, you know that I have served your father with all my strength. Sorry, I got lost again. I'll get there. Seven. Just call out the verses I'm going. <laughs> Yet your father has cheated me and changed my wages ten times. However, God did not allow him to hurt me. This is the tool. This is the implement that God's using on Jacob, the mirror of Laban. Laban has been cheating Jacob in the same way that Jacob cheated his own family. Laban is the schemer in the same way that Jacob is, the con artist in the same way that Jacob is, and Jacob's had to deal with this guy now, cheating him, ripping him off for 20 years. But Jacob is yet to recognize that Laban is simply a mirror of his own life. He's whining here to Rachel and Leah. He's saying, your dad cheated me. Your dad was not fair to me. Ten times he changed my wages. This has been a hard 20 years. And your dad, man, not fair. Hello? Hello? Pot, this is Kettle. You're black. Come on. Jacob, he's not seeing this. He's whining to his wife. He's saying, I don't, this is not fair. It's not right. I've been cheated. The cheater has been cheated. God placed Jacob in a relationship with a guy who's just like him to show Jacob what he's like. Now, I said a moment ago that I'll, a lot of times I'll see in other people the flaws and the faults that I don't like in my own self. In fact, those are the things that annoy me about others. Those are the things that we see in others and we, we're easy to pick out. You know why we can easily pick out our flaws and faults in other people? It's because we're so familiar with them. We're so comfortable with them. They're so us. And we see them in others, and we recognize them. And 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5 tells us something. 
The Spirit in 1 Corinthians 13 is revealing the agape way of love. The agape way. The unconditional love. The way true love, perfect love really is. And in 1 Corinthians 13.5, the Spirit tells us love does not take into account a wrong suffering. Now, Jacob's kept a good accounting here. But love doesn't do that. Love does not take into account a wrong suffered. The person who has true agape love doesn't even notice a wrong. That person is not interested in pointing out wrongs done to him. That's what we would call the nice person. And we all know them. And they bug us too because they're so nice. They just treat other people well. And they, they just don't seem to notice the bad things other people are doing. I notice... Didn't you see what he just did? Oh, no, I didn't notice. Was that something offensive? Love does not take into account a wrong suffered. Jacob is not yet seeing that Laban is a mirror of himself, and he's pointing out all of Laban's wrongs to his wives. He's setting his father-in-law against his father-in-law's daughters. And yet at this point in his life, has Jacob shown any remorse or apology for cheating Esau? Has he even thought about it? That what's being done to him is no different than exactly what he had done before. Granted, that even without asking him to make it right, God did save Jacob. He sought a relationship with him. He gave him the birthright. He gave him blessing. But now with the mirror of Laban, God is also giving Jacob something that he really needs before he can become sanctified. He's giving him discipline. And that's the part, we talked about this a little bit on Sunday, that working out our salvation. That's the part that we're not always so comfortable with in our Christian life. The grace part is great. Salvation, wonderful. But the discipline, that's what I don't like. I want you to turn in your Bibles real quickly to to the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews 12. Starting in verse 4, the Hebrew writer, and I believe it's Paul, is sharing some things about the lives that we live. In fact, starting in verse 3, referring to Jesus, he said, Consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Now, what kind of hostility did Jesus endure from sinners? The cross, the beatings, the jeerings. The fun, the anger, the sheer meanness that was poured out on Jesus. And yet, Paul now says, verse 4, You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood in your striving against sin. And you have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, He disciplines, and He scourges every son whom He receives. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons, for what son is there whom his father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us, our fathers, for a short time as seemed best to them. But He disciplines us for our good. Why? 
so that we may share his holiness. His holiness. That's an important word. I'll put a little check by that or, or circle it or just remember it. Hang on to that word holiness. He disciplines us so that we may share his holiness. All discipline, he goes on, for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Yet, to those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Therefore, strengthen the hands that are weak and the knees that are feeble, and make straight paths for your feet, so that the limb which is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Pursue peace with all men and the sanctification... It's another one to circle or make note of. The sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. Jacob has to see himself in the mirror of Laban before he can truly see and understand the Lord. He's saved, but his relationship with God needs to move to a new place. And it can't until Jacob sees where he's coming from. It's why God calls us to confession as we accept him. Because we've got to be real with who we are. We've got to understand that before we can move on in this relationship, before we can literally be sanctified. Now that word sanctified is literally the word purified. And I mentioned two words in this passage. Verse 10, the word for holiness, and verse 14, the word for sanctification. They're the same word. They're different versions of the word. In the Greek, holiness in verse 10 is hagiotes, which is purity. And the word for sanctification in verse 14 is hagiosmos, which is purification. Now, some of you, if you've studied a little bit, especially if you study prophecy, you might recognize a root word in there. Hagiotes, hagiosmos. The word is hagios. Hagios. Hagios is the word in the Bible that means holy one or saints. When you read through scripture, when you see the word saints, it's usually the word hagios. And it's very interesting to me, that word hagias refers to someone who is pure, or at least being purified. Someone who's being sanctified. Why does someone like Jacob or you or I need to be sanctified? Because we can't be effective tools for God until we have been cleaned up. But the cleaning up, see, let me see if I can explain this. We get it all backwards. We think that we need to get sanctified to get saved. And God says, no, I'm going to save you and then I will sanctify you. I will go through the process with you. I will clean you up. You don't clean yourself up. You don't have the tools. You don't have the equipment to do it. I'll do that. First, let's get you saved. Just believe in me. Accept me. Confess your need for me. Then, we're going to get to work. The working out of salvation. Then, we'll begin to work on you being sanctified, becoming a hagias. Now, let me show you where hagias is used a few times in Scripture because it's very cool. Zechariah chapter 14, verse 5. In speaking to the Jewish people, the prophet here is saying, You will flee by the mount, valley of my mountains, for the valley of the mountains will reach to Azel. Yes, you will flee as you did, as you fled before the earthquakes in the days of Isaiah, the king of Judah. And he's talking about the tribulation at this point. And he's saying, Jewish people, those of you alive at the time of the tribulation, you're going to flee. You're going to be running like crazy. You're going to run for your lives. And something's going to happen. Listen to this. Then... The Lord my God will come and all his holy ones with him. That phrase holy ones in the Old Testament is akin to the phrase in the New Testament. It is not talking about angels. Holy ones in the Old Testament. There is a word for angels in the, in the Old Testament and this is not it. Holy ones is referring to those who have been purified by God. But take it a step further. 
in the New Testament, Jude, verses 14 and 15. Jude writes that it was also about these men that Enoch in the seventh generation from Adam prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord came with many thousands of his holy ones. And there's that word, hagias. Many thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment upon all. Paul echoes this, 1 Thessalonians 3.13. Paul's praying and he, said, he prays that, that God may establish your hearts without blame in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. Saints is holy ones. Hagias. At the coming of Jesus with his saints. It's an important clue as to where the saints are when Jesus comes back again. They're with him. It's an important clue as to what the saints are doing when Jesus comes back again. They're coming back with him. Revelation 19 clears the whole picture up in talking about how we ride, we follow Jesus. The saints, the church, the bride in his glorious return. The holy ones, the hagias, those purified come with him. It's amazing that we miss this. My life, I grew up thinking that you basically had yeah, shut that door way back there. Thank you. I grew up thinking that it all kind of would boil and broil and go along to a certain point, and then Jesus would come back and he would get us all and he would bring us out with him. But that's not even what Jesus says he's going to do. Matthew chapter 24, listen to this closely. Let me read this to you. Jesus says, immediately after the tribulation of those days. After the tribulation, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from the sky, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with great power and glory. Now listen to this closely. He will send forth his angels with a great trumpet, and they will gather together his elect. Where, is, where are they going to gather the, the elect together from? Jesus says, from the four winds, from one end of the sky to the other. The elect are not gathered up from planet Earth, because the elect are not on planet Earth. The elect are gathered up from the four winds, from one end of the sky to the other. We are already with Jesus in heaven. And at the time of the glorious appearing, he's going to send his angels out and gather us all up, and down we go. And it's awesome. Now, Revelation 19, again, expresses that very clearly. Let me just read this to you also, Revelation 19. See, if ever I have opportunity to go off in the prophecy direction, I will. I'll take it. Revelation chapter 19 tells us in verse 7, Let us rejoice and be glad and give the glory to Him, for the marriage of the Lamb has come and His bride has made herself ready. I've asked this question before. I'll ask it again. Who's the bride? It's the church, and we know that. Throughout Scripture, the church is referred to as the bride. So now the bride has made herself ready for the groom, who is Jesus. And it says, It was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Fine linen, bright and clean. Now, if you skip down a little bit further, it tells us something. It tells us that heaven is open, verse 11, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire, his head has many diadems on it, and his name, he has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name will be called the Word of God. That's Jesus. Verse 14. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. The 
the armies in heaven are wearing the same thing that the bride is wearing and I put it to you clearly that the bride and the army are one and the same that we return with Jesus the holy ones that Jude talked about Jude 14 and 15 many thousands of his holy ones coming with him and holy ones again is not angels in the Greek it would be angelos but it's not in Jude 14 and 15 it's hagios when Paul says the same thing in 1 Thessalonians 3.13 it's hagios the Lord Jesus returns with all his saints we come with him because we've already spent the last seven years with him in a heavenly honeymoon during that time of tribulation which is here on earth that was just a quick peek at the future back to Genesis 31 here's the good news with Jacob the good news is that though Jacob still has some things to learn though he's still not quite seeing well in the mirror he's kind of seeing in the mirror darkly at this point he has still learned a few things there is change taking place in his life even while he's defending himself Jacob is coming out of the fog of his own deceit because he sees one thing very clearly. Look at verse 8. Jacob still talking about Laban said, If he spoke thus, the speckled shall be your wages, then all the flock brought forth speckled. And if he spoke thus, the striped shall be your wages, then all the flock brought forth striped. And thus God has taken away your father's livestock and given them to me. Who did that? God did. And it came about at that time when the flock were mating that I lifted up my eyes and I saw in a dream and behold the male goats which were mating were striped, speckled and mottled. And then the angel of God said to me in a dream, Jacob, and I said, here I am. And he said, lift up now your eyes and see that all the male goats which are mating are striped, speckled and mottled for I have seen all that Laban has been doing to you. I am the God of Bethel, where you anointed a pillar, where you made a vow to me. Now arise, leave this land, and return to the land of your birth. Rachel and Leah said to him, Do we still have any portion or inheritance in our father's house? Are we not reckoned by him as foreigners? For he has sold us. Then he has also entirely consumed our purchase price. Surely all the wealth which God has taken away from our father belongs to us and our children. Now then, do whatever God has said to you. You see, Jacob shifts his focus. Laban's been against me. Laban's been hard on me. But you know what? God's taken care of me. God has been there with me. God has seen me through all of these times. Jacob sees through a mirror darkly, but he sees that the Lord is in control. And for the first time in Jacob's life, we see him now referring to God and recognizing God at work in his life. Now, well, let's read on, verse 17. God wanted Jacob and his family out of Padam Aram, and, and for good reason, and here it is, verse 17. Then Jacob arose and put his children and his wives upon camels, and he drove away all his livestock and all his property which he had gathered, his acquired livestock which he had gathered in Padan Aram, to go to the land of Canaan to his father Isaac. And when Laban had gone to shear his flock, check this out, Rachel stole the household idols that were her father's. And, J and Jacob deceived Laban the Aramean by not telling him that he was fleeing. So he fled with all he had and he arose and he crossed the Euphrates River and set his face toward the hill country of Gilead. 
And when it was told Laban on the third day that Jacob had fled, then he took his kinsmen with him and pursued him a distance of seven days' journey, and he overtook him in the hill country of Gilead. But God came to Laban the Aramean in a dream of the night, and he said to him, Be careful that you do not speak to Jacob either good or bad. A couple of things to notice. Rachel was taking daddy's gods. Rachel's grabbed the gods in the household. One reason why God, the true God, the one God, wants Jacob and his family out of there. Because there's already pagan influence that is seeping in. So she's grabbed the, the gods. She's taken off running with, with Jacob. They fled with all their stuff. And now Laban is in a murderous rampage. And I personally believe that had God not stepped in in the dream, Laban would have killed Jacob. Grabbed his daughters, grabbed his stuff, gotten his gods back, and headed home. Because he was so absolutely angry. But God steps in and says, Laban, you better watch your mouth. You better take care. And obviously it has an impact on Laban. Verse 25, Laban caught up with Jacob. Now Jacob had pitched his tent in the hill country, and Laban with his kinsmen camped in the hill country of Gilead. And then Laban said to Jacob, What have you done by deceiving me? Again, pot. This is kettle. <laughs> and carrying away my daughters like captives of the sword. Why did you flee secretly and deceive me? And did not tell me so that I might have sent you away with, with joy and, and with songs. And with Timbal and with the liar. Yeah, I'll tell you who's a liar. And did not allow me to kiss my sons and my daughters. Now you have done foolishly. To this point, Laban's whining. Just like Jacob was whining before. These two are so much alike. But Laban, as he's whining, is saying, you know, you, you hurt me. You cut me deep, Laban. Or Jacob. You hurt me, man. I mean, you, you take off in the middle of the night, you take my daughters with you, and I would have thrown you a big party. Yeah, right. You were going to throw any kind of party. Jacob ran because it was all he could do. And so Laban's going on, but now we see Laban's true motives. Verse 29, he says, It is in my power to do you harm. But the God of your father spoke to me last night, saying, Be careful not to speak either good or bad to Jacob. So he starts out trying to sound hurt, but soon becomes clear that the problem is not hurt, it's hatred. You ripped me off, and if not for your God, I'd rip your head off. <laughs> Jacob, speaking of God, look at the next verse, verse 30. Now you have indeed gone away because you longed greatly for your father's house. But why did you steal my gods? <laughs> why did you steal my gods? How'd you like to have a God that could be stolen? <laughs> How'd you like that? The, the, the God that you trust, that you have faith in, someone can lift him right out of your house and take off. That's pretty sad. That's pretty pathetic. And it's pretty culturally relevant in 2004. What do you mean? <laughs> these household images, these gods that Rachel stole, that Laban is now coming after, that that's what he really wants. He wants his gods back. They're called teraphim. And they signified a couple of things in the homes of Haran and in Mesopotamia. They signified pagan worship. The people did keep their little gods in their house for worship purposes. But folks, don't miss this. In the same way that we live in a society that claims at some level to believe in God but is very secular, it was the same way in pagan societies. The people would keep these little gods in their houses not just as a place of worship, not because they were so devoted to them, but the gods signified the philosophy of the house. 
they were a picture of the frame of mind, of the way the leader of the house thought, of what he believed. And God wants Jacob out of this house. But Rachel's clinging to her father's gods, and Laban is furiously chasing them down. But this is important to understand. In fact, stop for a moment and think about this. Know this as we work our way through the Old Testament. We've alluded to this before. The people in Jacob's day were not stupid. They were not senseless. They were not cavemen. They were not uninformed or unintelligent or unintellectual, unsophisticated, senseless, stupid people. That is any more than we are. And we think because we're down this line of history so many thousands of years that we have matured and and grown and we have an intellect that is vastly greater than the people in those days. And that's not the case. We are not better. We have figured a few things out technologically. But as I've also said before, we still don't even know how they built the pyramids. We can't figure that one out. How'd they get that up? I don't know. Why? Interesting. Now we can build all kinds of things. We can't do that. But I tell you this to say this. We see Laban's little gods and with arrogance we say, oh, that's foolish. We don't have gods like that today. We don't set up those little statues in our homes. We don't have the multi-breasted Ashtaroth who we worship, the goddess of sexuality. No, we have the Playboy Bunny. We don't have the stocky little god Mammon. We have MasterCard. We don't have the god Molech. Instead, we have pleasure and prosperity. And we really seek after those things. In fact, when I think about just over the last week of my life, what have I done that was surely for pleasure? Just for pleasure. For no other purpose whatsoever. Going to the movies. Eating a Twinkie. (laughs) Sitting with my feet up with a cup of tea watching Fox News. Simply for pleasure. For no other reason. How much of our lives today are filled with pleasure seeking? A lot. We don't have household bales who were images of intellect and philosophy. No, instead we have things like the great books of the Western world. We have self-help sections in our bookstores. We have human intellect. We are so impressed. If they start to dive bomb me, would you just let me know? We're so impressed with our intellect and with our books and with, and, and with our learning and with our knowledge, even to the point that theologians, and this still amazes me, that there are theologians who don't believe in God, but they study Him all their lives. No, we don't have our Baals, our Ashtaroths, our Mammon, our Molech. We just have all our own philosophies. We have a whole different set of household gods, teraphim, that represent the philosophy of our homes. And, and I've got to ask, and I've been thinking about this all week, what is your personal philosophy in your home today? If someone were to come into your home and spend a week living with your family, what is the philosophy, the teaching, the belief system that they would come out with? What would they see? What would they understand and know about your family as that which is most important? What are the little gods that we all have tucked away? Financial security? Would people see laying out all over the coffee table physical health and beauty magazines because that's our focus? Or books along the walls showing our intellectual pursuits or material well-being seen in the very furniture that we have or our personal pleasure seen in our massive TVs and stereo systems? Or would they see a simple trust in the Lord as the one true God? Paul says, 
Behind all these images, there is demonic force. Behind the things that the Gentiles chase after in terms of God, there are demons. 1 Corinthians 10.20 All the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. And I do not want you to become sharers in demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. And I think about how never in the history of the world has a country been as wealthy as we are in America. Has a people had as much as we have right now. We would rival even people like King David for the type of pleasure and the things that we have our finger, at our fingertips at, at the, the call of a phone, the push of a button. Opportunity that Solomon didn't have. And at the same time, there is all this wealth and opportunity. There is a greater poverty than has ever been on the face of the planet. There's a greater waste. There's a greater loss of human life. I saw a bumper sticker the other day I thought was interesting. It just said, protect human life, and it had two silhouettes. The silhouette of an infant and the silhouette of an old man. Protect human life on both ends of the spectrum. Because human life is precious. Here's the thing. Our personal pleasantries, like Laban's gods, cannot satisfy us. They cannot save us. I don't care how many Twinkies you eat, you will still always want another Twinkie the next day if you happen to be a Twinkie person, like I myself am. They cannot save us. They're easily stolen. My kids are always taking my Twinkies. And all too easily, our little gods are passed on to the next generation. Laban's upset because his gods have been stolen from him and he wants them back. Rachel's running with the gods that she stole, she took from her father. Why did she take those gods? Because she was raised with them. These were the gods she knew. And there was some sense of, we're leaving, I need some protection. Rachel's not yet looking to the Lord. She's looking to her father's gods. And, and I immediately this hit me like a club in my head. What are the gods I'm passing on to my kids? What are the gods they're taking out of the front door of the house with them every day? Folks, ultimately, prophetically, the loss of these little gods and goods will be lamented and grieved and mourned over. And I want to share with you something. Something about the fall of Babylon. This is another Revelation passage. It's Revelation chapter 18. In fact, quickly flip over there because you need to see this. It's relevant to what we're talking about. These little gods, these teraphim of pleasure and, and stuff. Revelation 18 describes the downfall, the final destruction of Babylon. Now there is so much behind this that I won't even touch tonight. But understand this, that people look at, at this Babylon referred to in Revelation 18. And they see one of three things. Either they see it as Rome. There are some Bible commentators who look at Babylon in Revelation 18 and say, Oh, that's Rome. It's, it's called Babylon, but it's a picture of Rome. And that's where Antichrist is going to be headquartered and Rome's going to fall. So that's what's happening here. And I don't think that's it. There are other people who look at it and say it's America. You'll see why in a moment. I don't believe that's it either, although this Babylon in Revelation 18 looks an awful lot like America. But I don't believe it is. I think it is truly a literal Babylon. Because as we said before in studying Revelation, when you study the book of Revelation, you take it at face value unless John tells you it's something other than what it is. And here he's just talking about Babylon falling. 
and listen to what he describes a quick escalator ride through Babylon 5th Avenue these are all the things that people mourn when Babylon falls number one we're going to start at the top floor this is verse 12 of Revelation 18 we start at the top floor in the jewelry department Hayden she's over here I think he's had a few Twinkies tonight We start at the top floor In the jewelry department Revelation 18.12 refers to cargoes of gold and silver And precious stones and pearls And next we ride down the escalator to men's and women's Hang on down the escalator to men's and women's fine clothing described as fine linen and purple and silk and scarlet then we move on down to home furnishings and kitchenware every kind of citron wood and every article of ivory and every article made from very costly wood and bronze and iron and marble and on the next floor cosmetics fine foods delicacies verse 13 tells us cinnamon and spice and incense and perfume and frankincense and wine and olive oil and fine flour and wheat and cattle and sheep and now you move on down to the ground floor which is automotive cargoes of horses and chariots and finally we come to the basement and in the basement of this Babylon 5th Avenue we have the adult bookstore it says slaves and human lives literally that's the bodies and souls of men now what's going on in Revelation 18 is as Babylon falls the merchants and the ship's captains and the people watching from afar seeing the smoke rise up from fallen Babylon are mourning and lamenting the loss and what they're lamenting is the loss of these things and what do these things all have in common? they're all material goods not a single one of these things are staples for daily living they're luxuries they're pleasantries they are sensualities and that's where the world's headed those are the gods that people are clinging to today and my friends tragically these are the gods of this age who among us well maybe you don't I've got a massive DVD collection and I never meant to but I do because you get into Costco and they've got such good prices so you gotta have it and there's no need there's no you know and I I'm not trying to make anyone feel guilty about this, but you do need to understand that, that it's so easy to get distracted to these little gods that do nothing for us, as opposed to focusing on the one true God who wants Jacob out of here, he wants Rachel out of here before these little gods are passed on to the children. He wants us out of here before we start to cling to these gods as well. But alas, Rachel does grab a few of these gods on the way out. And now Jacob, accused of deceit by Laban, replies to him. Back to Genesis 31. Genesis 31, verse 31. Jacob replies to Laban. I want you to watch closely here what he says. Listen carefully. Then Jacob replied to Laban, 
Laban said, why did you run and all this? Because I was afraid. For I thought you would take your daughters from me by force. He would have. The one with whom you find your gods shall not live in the presence of our kinsmen. Point out what is yours among my belongings and take it for yourself. For Jacob did not know that Rachel had stolen him. And now verse 33. So Laban went into Jacob's tent. And he went into Leah's tent, and into the tent of the two maids, but he did not find him. Laban was intense. Laban was in. Sorry. He's clearly intent to get his gods back. Verse 34. Now Rachel had taken the household idols and put them in the camel's saddle. The camel's saddle was like the carry-on bag of the day. You know, today you would see them driving down the freeway, the little box where people put their luggage. Well, that was what the camel's saddle was. And it sat on the camel, and literally they could put luggage and things inside of it. And she had taken the little gods and stuck them into the camel's saddle. And now she's sitting on the camel's saddle in her tent. And Laban fell through all the tents, but he did not find them. And she said to her father, Let not my lord be angry that I cannot rise before you, for the manner of woman is upon me. It's that time of the month that I can't get up, I'm sorry. And so he searched, but he did not find the household idols. Now, see what's happening here. Jacob's incensed because Laban is saying, You stole my gods. And Jacob's saying, What? What are you talking about? I'll tell you what. You find the person who stole your gods, and they will die today. Yeah. Because I didn't steal anything. I'm innocent. I'm free and clear. And he has no idea that his very own wife has stolen Laban's gods. He doesn't even know. Look at verse 36. Then Jacob became angry and contended with Laban. And Jacob said to Laban, What is my transgression? Now Jacob's starting to get a little hot under the collar. What is the sin that you have hotly pursued me? And though you have felt through all my goods, what have you found of all your household goods? Set it here before my kinsmen and your kinsmen that, I, that they may decide between us two. Man, these 20 years I have been with you. Your ewes and your female goats have not miscarried, nor have I eaten of the rams of your flocks. That which was torn of beasts I did not bring to you. I bore the loss of it myself. You required it of my hand, whether stolen by day or stolen by night. See, normally what would happen when someone was shepherding is that one of the lambs was eaten up by a fox or, or by a wolf or something, or a lion. They would take the remains to the owner of the flock, and the owner would let them off and say, okay, you know, this was not your fault. It was an attack by some outside force. But Jacob's saying, I had to pay for that. If a, if a lamb was stolen, I paid for it. If a sheep was taken day or night, it was on my head. You made me pay for it. And he goes on. He's really getting ticked off now. For 20 years, I bore the loss of it. You required it of my hand, whether stolen by day or stolen by night. Verse 40, thus I was. By the day the heat consumed me, and the frost by night, and my sleep fled from my eyes. These 20 years I have been in your house. I've served you 14 years for your two daughters, and six years for your flock, and you changed my wages ten times. And then Jacob says, If the God of my father, the God of Abraham, and the fear of Isaac had not been with me, surely now you would have sent me away empty-handed. God has seen my affliction and the toil of my hands, so he rendered judgment last night. What happened last night? Jacob happens to know, because Laban has told him, that God went to Laban last night and said, don't lay a finger on him. You watch your mouth, Laban. And Jacob says, see, God 
is on my side. Jacob, he is hopping mad here. And we know that because in verse 36, the word angry there is literally kara, which means blazing. He is blazing mad. And the word contended here, I just want to say the word, it's rebrube. Rebrube. He's rebrubing with Laban, which literally means to grapple with. He's blazing mad, and now he's getting up in Laban's face. He finally has some guts to do it, and he's saying, Get out of here. You have no right. You have no right to come chasing after me. He's ticked off, actually, for three good reasons. He's unreasonably chased. He's being chased down by Laban, and man, there's no reason for it. Verse 36 shows us that. Verse 37, he says, I'm unjustifiably charged. This is not fair. Say that I took your gods. That didn't happen. I didn't do it. Or so he thought. And he was unscrupulously cheated. And he lists all that had happened over the last 20 years. It all boils over. It comes rushing out of Jacob. He feels completely justified in it. But listen to this. This is the reason why I think this chapter is in the Bible. From Jacob's perspective, he had real reason to lash out. He had every right. He was the innocent party. He was the victim. He was the one who was hurt. Pursued by Laban, charged by Laban, cheated by Laban. This is not right. But he was missing something. Jacob didn't have all the facts. He didn't have all the knowledge. Jacob still only saw through a glass darkly, a mirror dimly. He did not know that his wife Rachel had stolen her father's gods. Why do I think this is why this chapter is in the Bible? Because it's of utmost importance in the way we deal with each other in our relationships. We so quickly rush to judgment when we don't have all the facts. We don't know everything that's going on with the other person. And I would challenge you even tonight to think of the person in your life who you believe has wronged you the most. Step back from that person and ask yourself the question, do I know everything going on with them? Do I understand every aspect of their life that might cause them to act or react the way that they are? Do I know whether or not maybe something has happened I'm unaware of? We don't know as much as we think we do in any given situation. We rarely have all the facts. Which is why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13:12, For now we see through a glass darkly. Right now we see through a mirror dimly. We don't see it clearly. We don't understand it all. It doesn't all make sense. I can't look into the heart of any single one of you here tonight and tell you why you do the things you do. And if you do something against me, I can't say that it was 100% wrong because I don't even know the motivation or where you're coming from. So maybe before we get all up in arms, angry and feeling victimized by someone else, we need to step back and recognize that we don't have all the facts. We love to use the phrase, hindsight is 20-20 vision, and that should teach us something. The only way we can have all the facts is when we look back. And then we can see kind of what's happened in the past. But we have no idea what's happening right now. We certainly don't know what's going to happen in the future. In our relationships, remember this, understand this, think on this frequently, we see darkly. And since we don't see well, let's learn to give the benefit of not knowing. 
Before we jump to blazing contentious conclusions like Jacob does, let's stop for a moment and accept the possibility that something may have happened that we're completely unaware of. Something may be going on that we just don't know about. And it could be something that goes back years in a person's life that has absolutely nothing to do with you. She's telling Barb tonight that there are times where I get mad at my kids and I've actually told them, listen guys, when I'm mad at you, I always love you, but know that sometimes I'm not mad at you because of you. Sometimes I've just had a really bad day and you don't know that, but I'm kind of taking it out on you. That happens. Guys, we see through a glass darkly and we would do well to defer all judgment to the one who sees perfectly. Hebrews 4.13 tells us all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. There's one person we need to answer to. There's one person we need to look to and that's Jesus because he's the only one who sees clearly. Verse 43. We'll finish up this chapter. Then Laban replied to Jacob, The daughters are my daughters, and the children are my children, and the flocks are my flocks, and all that you see is mine, dig, dig, dig. But what can I do this day since to these my daughters and to their children whom they have born? So now come, let's make a covenant, you and I, and let it be a witness between you and me. And then Jacob took a stone and set it up as a pillar. And Jacob said to his kinsmen, gather stones. So they took stones and made a heap. And they ate there by the heap. Now Laban called it Jagar Sahadupa. Great name for a heap. But Jacob called it Galid. Laban said, this heap is a witness between you and me this day. And therefore it was named Galid. Now Galid is the Hebrew of basically the heap of witness and Jagar Sahadutha is the Aramaic for the same phrase the heap of witness that's all it means the heap of witness so they called it the heap of witness you know heap up these rocks and these rocks are testimony between you and I but read verse 49 and listen closely to this it says before it was named Galid and Mizpah Mizpah is that familiar does that ring a bell with anybody the phrase Mizpah the word Okay, listen to this. For he said, May the Lord watch between you and me when we are absent one from the other. This phrase Mizpah, along with this verse, has been printed on little pendants and bracelets and it's been sold in Christian bookstores and it's even in some hymnals called the blessing or the benediction of Mizpah. The Mizpah benediction and it's completely unscriptural. And it's totally out of context. And if you have one of those little bracelets, I'm really sorry. But we take this, Christians have co-opted the word Mizpah and this phrase, May the Lord watch between you and me when we're absent from one another. We've taken it romantically as a sweet sentiment between friends. And it's not. It's not. It's a judgment. It is a witness against the other person. And I point that out because it's so easy to take scripture totally out of context. So easy to go, oh hey, Mizpah, Mizpah, may the Lord watch between you and between me, my brother, my sister. And when Laban was saying it, let me paraphrase, he was saying it more like this, I'm calling on God to keep his eye on you, you jerk. 
Because I can't trust you any further than I can throw you. Mizpah. That's what it means. So if you have someone you really don't like, buy them one of those little bracelets. And give it to them. It's not about mutual friendship and loyalty. It's a witness of mutual distrust, disdain. Mizpah literally, mean, or Mizpah literally means watchtower. Because Laban is saying, dude, you need watching. Mizpah. And this is a witness between us. And he's saying, you cross over this and come into my territory, you're dead meat. And I won't cross over it and come into your territory either. And God's going to keep his eye on you. God's going to watch you. Which God Laban's talking about? Well, it could be any number of gods. Whichever one he happened to pick for that day. But once again, as Laban is pointing the finger and saying, Dude, you need watching. The kettle is calling the pot black. The heap of witness was simply Laban's way of drawing a line in the sand and saying, That's your side. This is my side. We're through. Nice sentiment. Nice little party Laban's now throwing for Jacob as he goes away, huh? Verse 50. Actually, let me read it back a little bit. Verse 50. Yeah, sorry, verse 50. He, he says, If you mistreat my daughters, or if you take wives beside my daughters, although no man is with us, see, God is witness between you and me. And Laban said to Jacob, Behold, this heap, and behold the pillar which I set between you and me, this heap is a witness, and the pillar is a witness that I will not pass by this heap to you for harm, and you will not pass by this pillar, this heap and this pillar to me for harm. The God of Abraham and the God of Nahor and the God of their father judge between us. So Jacob swore by the fear of his father Isaac. I think that's fascinating. It's interesting to me that Laban calls on a God he doesn't even know. Mixed in with other gods, the God of Nahor and the God of Nahor's father who would be Terah, Abraham's father, who would have been a pagan god. He's calling on all these gods. He's trying to come sound religious now. And he's calling on all these gods to judge between them. And he has the gall to imply that Jacob is the one who needs watching. Now, two things to notice here. We're almost done. But it's interesting to me how people in the world today are calling on a lot of gods. Like the God of the Jews and the God of the Christians and the God of the Muslims. And you can hear prayers like that even in our national cathedral. You can hear prayers like that in different companies in different places. And I shared with you before that Cheryl and I were at an auction earlier this year, several months ago, where the, the priest, Catholic priest, got up to pray and he prayed to the God of the Christians and the God of the Jews. And I was okay at that point until he said, and the God of the Muslims. They have the Hindus and of the Buddhists and the God who is represented by whatever we believe here tonight. And I just sat and I went, does it make you feel more religious to call on all kinds of gods? The reality is there's just one. Jacob knows this and Jacob says something here that I think is awesome. He doesn't call on Jehovah. He doesn't call on the God of my father Abraham and Isaac. He doesn't reach out and start expansively talking about all these gods. All he does is he swears by, quote, the fear of Isaac. What's the fear of Isaac? God. Jehovah. The one true God. By the way, Isaac never served any other God but Yahweh. Even Abraham couldn't claim that distinction. Because Abraham did serve other gods early on in his life. But Isaac in his life only served one God. The fear, the awe of Isaac. 
And so in, in this moment, before Laban, as Laban's calling witness to all these gods, Jacob just steps up and says, No, I, I will swear by, swear by the fear of my father Isaac. That God I will focus on. Peter and John stood before the Sanhedrin. They had been spending the entire night in jail for preaching the name of Jesus in the temple courts. And they were brought before the Jewish ruling council, the Sanhedrin. And in Acts chapter 4, verse 18, I'll read this to you. When they had summoned them, they commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered and said to them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to give heed to you, rather than to God, you be the judge. For we cannot stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. And I ask you, as you hear Jacob say, I swear by the fear of my father Isaac, who is the God that you fear? Who is it that you are concerned with pleasing? Who is the one who is most important to you? And seek to please him. And don't seek to please man. You know, I'm, I'm thrilled that the Supreme Court ruled this last week that, that under God stays in the Pledge of Allegiance. Actually, they didn't rule that at all. They just ruled that the guy couldn't bring the suit to the Supreme Court. So it's not really a victory, it's a sidestep. This is still going to go on, it's still going to broil. The ACLU has their work cut out for them, but they're going to come back and, and, and hammer away at this thing. I'm not concerned with pleasing man. Jacob could care less whether or not Laban was pleased here. And he wasn't calling out all kinds of gods to be impressive. He was concerned with the fear of his father Isaac, the one God who he was learning finally to trust. He acknowledges only one God and the saved schemer is slowly but surely submitting to the Lord. He is slowly but surely getting it. In fact, I think in this moment as Laban is calling out to all these gods, Jacob is looking in the mirror and beginning to see himself. And he doesn't like what he sees. And so he calls upon the one God he knows. Verse 55. 54? That's right. Then Jacob offered a sacrifice on the mountain. And he called his kinsmen to the meal. And they ate the meal and spent the night on the mountain. And early in the morning Laban arose and kissed his sons and his daughters. And not his son-in-law. And blessed them. And then Laban departed and returned to his place. So Laban passes out of Jacob's life and out of God's word. And we won't see him again in scripture. And tragically it's unlikely we will ever see Laban again. Because regardless of how many gods we call out to, there's only one God who saves. And Jacob finally gets it. By the way, next week we'll see Jacob again in the wrestling match of his life when he finally comes to a place that he can be sanctified. But we'll save that for next week. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, thank you for the example of Jacob's life. And God, if there's any one thing that stands out, I imagine there are things in this passage, in this study, that stand out to folks differently than me. But the one that stands out the most just comes back to that place of us rushing to judgment like Jacob did. And I pray, Lord, that you will give us 2020 vision not just by hindsight but by spiritual trust and discernment help us Father to have as part of our vocabulary the benefit of the doubt the, the ability the willingness Lord to cut people some slack in our lives and maybe tonight Father 
maybe the reason why we're studying this right now is that there's someone here who is struggling with another person who's done them wrong. And I pray that for each of us, if we're in a situation or have been in situations like that, that we can step back and take a breath and realize that we do not know everything that's going on. We don't have the whole picture. So Father, tonight, maybe instead of us looking at other people with judgment, we need to just look to your son Jesus, who is the only righteous judge. Thank you so much for your words. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.